the ending of the manual which speaks about the morning about the different ways that we can get ourselves from the desert into the field according to the Alter Rebbe, right? That there's the arousing and awakening mercy on our soul. Um, mercy is seen as the emotion that is easiest to access when it comes to feeling anything for God or spirituality or our soul. And then once we have already felt some sort of emotion, we can then go on to the more difficult emotions of love and fear. Um, we said if somebody can't awaken mercy on themselves, they should dive into Hashem, that he should help them. And then the altar ends off with, like in an extreme case, if someone's heart is turned to stone, then they should basically like break themselves physically to get out of that, um, out of that state. We said that the Rebbe's approach was that for this generation, that does not apply. The Rebbe's approach to Teshuvah was one of completely coming from a positive place. But what the Rebbe calls Teshuvah mitoich simcha. Shiva from joy, returning to who we really are and recommitting ourselves to the Torah, to the mitzvahs, to Hashem from a positive place, which is much more difficult, by the way, just so you know, that being motivated by positive emotions to change as opposed to negative emotions to change, it's much harder in the short run. In the long term, it lasts longer, but in the short term, fear guilt, shame, emotions that many people tend to associate with Elo work much better to motivate us to change. Um, but the Rebbe was adamant that that is absolutely not the avoda of this generation, that that leads, unfortunately, to not good things, and that it all needs to come from a place of joy. And are you guys, do you have a program for tonight for Chai Elo? Okay. Okay. Amazing. Because it's uh, it's definitely a big one. It's again we spoke about it yesterday, the birthday of the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe on the 18th of Elul, which we said 18 is high. It's the life of Elul, and we touched yesterday on the idea that the whole approach to Elul has completely changed with the with the introduction of Hasidus into the world, and one of the big things and perspectives that has changed is this idea that teshuva does not just have to do with sin. Teshuva is an altogether different about it. It's something we have to do every single day. And it's something that actually transcends just whether or not we sin. And so this mimer that we're going to be discussing, that we're going to be not just discussing, this mimer that we're going to be learning and delving into for the next uh, week and a half or so till, till Rosh Hashanah, is going to be giving us a bit of what we call the haskalah, the philosophy and the logic behind what does teshuva mean and what are the yud gimel midot rachamim that we've been speaking so much about. What are they actually? So within maimarim, specifically the Alter Rebbe's maimarim, there's two categories. One is called haskalah, which is more intellectual. And one is called avoda, which means work, which is practical, like what to, what to do. And so we're going to be learning a mixture of both throughout the year. This moment is actually pretty intellectual, okay? So I want you to prepare you for that, that we're going to be trying to understand on an intellectual level what is this power that we keep speaking about in Elul? Where does it come from? How does it fit into the order of creation? And what is Teshuvah and where does that fall into our service of God? Torah, mitzvahs, prayer, Teshuvah. Where does that fall in? Where does that come from? And... In our classes, we're going to be focusing a lot on concepts, and that is, um, that is on purpose. So some classes are very much like, many, many times when you learn a sicha or certain things, let's get the flow of, um, of the mimer or of the sicha or of whatever it is, the gemara, let's get the flow, and we're good. I prefer that you get the concepts even over the flow. We're going to all get the flow. We're going to get how everything works together, how the structure of a mimer works, the message that the altar is conveying. But throughout the year, I want you to know that we will be taking time to learn concepts. Um, I just find that when you walk away with concepts versus knowing a certain mimer, like totally, the concepts will be able to keep you going forward because then you can open a new mimer, you can open Hasidus, and you'll be able to find the flow of a new mimer because you know the concepts, if that makes sense. So we're actually going to be learning some concepts, um, Hasidic, Zoharic, Kabbalistic concepts in this mimer that you can think, wait, what does that have to do with Elul? What does that have to do with the original question? Again, the Alter Rebbe will ask a question and then go into a totally different topic. And then once we actually understand the topic, we can answer the question 
and understand it on a completely new dimension. So we will, this is Mohaskala. So because it's Mohaskala, and we're also in Elo, which is a time where we want to know practically, tachlis, we say in Hebrew, practically, like what do I need to do? I will be just adding in from different places and things that the Rebbe said, um, perspectives on tshuva and things like that from outside the Mimer. But a lot of this is going to be um, the intellectual, the reasoning, the how behind tshuva and behind the Yudkimul Midot HaRachamim. Are you able to just repeat Haskalah? Sure. So Haskalah comes the word Seichel. I can write it on the board. Oh, cool. Do these work? Yes. Yay. Haskalah has the word Seichel in it. Seichel means intellect. It's the mind. And so this means like intellectual. And it's really the philosophy behind the positions of Chabad that, they, that Chabad Chassidus takes on a whole range of topics, on their weekly parsha, etc. And then we have Avoda. Avoda means service, work. And the word Eved, Eved means to work, and it also means, um, in the verb, it means lavo, to work, and, or to make, and, no, sorry, not to make, to work, and Eved means a servant, actually. So practically, work, tachlis, like what do we need to do? And how and how do we do it? Good morning. So I don't remember who, I think it was you who asked me your name. Um, yeah, about... Um, your name is Emma? Yeah. Emma. So you were asking about how can we do teshuva if we don't feel anything, right? So I wanted to just touch on that because the Mimer doesn't. Yes? If I have a similar question, if you can just... Okay. Like, if someone did something and they knew it was wrong, but they just don't feel like guilty about it, I guess yet, like, like you want to, like, if, what do they do if they want to ask for forgiveness, but they just don't feel guilty about it? That's a really, that's a really interesting one. The Rebbe's perspective, actually, with these kind of things, was ask to shiva on th- uh, ask forgiveness for the things you're ready to change, mm-hmm. because otherwise you can burn yourself out. Because if you know you're not ready to change something and you like say it and you and you like commit to it anyway, kind of, mm-hmm. you say I'm gonna do it, like, and you know in your heart like this is something that's truly beyond you right now. Mm-hmm. You're going to keep doing teshuva on the same thing. You're gonna get burnt out, and then teshuva is gonna become actually something that's not even practical. It's almost like there's this guilt trip every day. Like I told myself I was gonna do it and I didn't. Kind of like what we do with dieting. You know, we like we give ourselves a completely unrealistic expectation of how we're gonna eat that day, and then just at the end of every day, it's like, oh my gosh, I didn't do it. Oh my gosh, I didn't do it. Like look at what you can do. And um, there's a very interesting sikha of the Rebbe, which discusses uh, the idea, I'm going to be learning like the whole thing with the shluchas, so you can ask them a little later, but regarding Yom Kippur, um, there's a very interesting verse um, that Rabbi Akiva said. He said, just as a mikvah, you guys know a mikvah, a ritual bath, purifies the impure, so too God forgives um, the Jewish people regarding Yom Kippur. And the question that's asked is, what does it mean that the mikvah purifies the impure? If you're purifying something, it means it was impure. So the word impure is extra. And we take these things very seriously. There's no extra words anywhere. So what does it mean purifies the impure? And the Rebbe says a beautiful, beautiful point there, which is that there's a very interesting halakha that if, if in the time of the temple, when, when um, purity and impurity mattered a lot more, if a person stumbled across, like came in touch with a dead animal, they had a certain aspect of impurity. They couldn't go to the Beit HaMikdash. They had to go into the ritual bath and then come out. And also if a person came in touch with a dead body, they also needed to go to a ritual bath, but they also had to wait a longer period of time. They had to wait seven days. They had to get sprinkled by the red heifer, by the ashes of the red heifer. It was a whole other process. So there's these two categories of impurity, one lesser and one more. And so the question is, what if somebody is, has a really bad day? They come across a dead person and a dead animal. So they have two types of impurity, a higher level of impurity and a lower level of impurity. Should they go to the mikvah that day? Or should they wait seven days and then go for both? You would think that they should wait seven days and didn't just go for both. But they says, no, 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 you should go that day to get rid of the lesser impurity. And you're absolved of that impurity, the impurity of coming in touch with a dead animal. And then seven days later, you can go and, and say, why? And that's the idea. Just as a mikvah can purify those who still remain impure, so too God forgives the Jewish people. That we can ask forgiveness on certain things, even though we know that we're going to still 
remain impure, so to speak, in other aspects of our life as well. So it just, it's a whole, it's a very practical approach to Yom Kippur specifically. Like, um, you know, I like you show up to Yom Kippur and say, you know, you're not going, you're not committing to God right now. You're going to absolutely change your entire life. You're not ready to do that, but you can choose specific things to focus on and God will give you specifically for those things. Yeah. I was just going to ask you to repeat that one more time. We can ask forgiveness for things. That we can ask forgiveness mm-hmm. for small things, mm-hmm. even though we're not ready to focus on the big things, okay. which, is, which is completely counterintuitive. If you owed a person $100,000 and the person is chasing you the whole year, you owe me $100,000, you owe me $100,000, then a year later you show up on their door, you say, here's five bucks. Mm-hmm. They'd slam the door on your face. They wouldn't take the five bucks. Mm-hmm. Bring me the $100,000. God is not a person. And that's actually what we're discussing this moment. Why is it and how is it that even though we've not acted the way that God requested us to act in the, in the previous year, how are we able to tap into this total, ultimate forgiveness from God? How do we do that? And that's really what this mimer is about. Because God deals with us in a very different way than people deal with people, which, thank God, right? Thank you, Hashem. Because otherwise we'd be in, a, we'd be in big trouble. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Especially, like, big things are still coming in. Like, you know what I mean? Like, as the as with the... With the you told this in Basilegane. I don't remember who's, who was wearing like who was like like I was not ready to come in and the the, the hostess was pretty, like was trying to get to the rabbit and Bokhar was standing behind him. Oh oh and, yes, 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 so, yes. So, so yeah, like like the same thing. The like, previous it's still yeah. coming. Like you should just start with a with a Yes, small Rosh Hashanah's coming, Yom Kippur's coming, yeah. Elul is here. And God doesn't require us to become brand new individuals yeah. and leave our entire lives behind in order to tap into the energy of that time. Mm-hmm. But, and this is the whole point of Ani Lododi, we have to make the effort, even if it's a really small effort, even if it's a small thing. When you start with the, start with the small things, you're able to eventually get to the big things. But if you start with the big things, you, you, it, make, it makes Teshuvah, it makes Judaism look so hard that you give up before you even started. Um, everything in Judaism, like, I mean, like, obviously, like, we learn this, I feel like, as Baal like, that it's not all or nothing. But, like, this concept, I feel like, is the same. Like, you don't have to ask forgiveness for every, everything. Just, like, you know. Ask forgiveness for the things you're actually willing to change. Teshuvah, according to the Rambam, the Rambam defines the mitzvahs on a practical level. And Teshuvah is a command. We need to do Teshuvah. So, practically, what does that mean? The Rambam says it is committing to change something and actually doing it. Then there's like more, you know, to confess in public. There's different like elements of teshuvah of the mitzvah. But the primary mitzvah is to say, I'm not going to do this anymore and then actually not to do it anymore. That's teshuvah, you've done teshuvah. It's not much more complicated than that. Although, yeah. Um, yeah, so I also had a, like a perspective on the, on the teshuvah. It's, it's, it's also like more that it's just recognizing Hashem's authority. And it's also like, is it what's the difference between that type of teshuvah that I've done wrong, like I want to be better, and just like recognizing that, okay, Hashem, there's a higher authority above me, and I submit to that authority. That's an amazing question. So Hasidus teaches us that there's two levels of teshuvah. There's what's called teshuva tata'a, which means the lower level of teshuva. In general, any concept in Chassidus is the lower aspect than the higher aspect. So there's the lower aspect of teshuva, teshuva tata'a, and then there's teshuva ila'a, the higher element of teshuva. Teshuva tata'a is referring to what we call azivata chet, leaving behind sin. So teshuva tata'a is the whole process of us addressing our actions, our sins, and using that as a motivator to change, committing to do things differently, what we usually associate with teshuva, that process, is actually called the lower level of teshuva. The reason it's considered the lower level of teshuva is because we're recommitting to Hashem based on our actions, based on what we've done in the past, basically based on our sin. There's, there's the sin is involved there. It's part of, part of the discussion. Teshuva ila'a is what you were saying. It's coming to this realization and appreciation that God is everything in my life and feeling joy and gladness for that, and then automatically, you don't want to sin anymore. I was trying to think of an example for this, um, of this idea, because because the truth is that the Rebbe, 
it was always seen that it's a two-step process. You start with a lower level of tshuva, then you get to the high level of tshuva. You start with, you know, confronting your, your actions, going through your history and choosing, you know, have, you know, asking God for forgiveness on those things. And then once you've kind of mastered Teshuva Tata, then you get to the next level, which is this like completely new perspective on life, which automatically leads to a recommitment to Torah and mitzvahs and automatically involves leaving sin behind, not in a direct way, but in an indirect way. <clears throat> the Rebbe's perspective is that this generation, just Shuvah Tshuva mitoch simcha, tshuva that comes from joy, is actually referring to the higher level of tshuva, which in the past in Hasidic philosophy was actually seen as something for the greats, you know? It's a level that you achieve, that you wait, you know, when you can achieve that level, you can do this higher level of tshuva. The Rebbe said in this generation, we're already on such a level that we can go straight to tshuva. It has to be from joy. So it's interesting because at the same time, we really do learn about El. It's a time of cheshbon nefesh, of reflection, of searching in our soul and seeing where did we lose touch, where did we get desensitized. And that is, that is important. But the Rebbe's perspective is for our generation, the emphasis needs to be on just approaching God from a place of joy uh, and of gratitude and of excitement and, and trying to just switch our perspective. And then when we do that, and the Rebbe emphasizes that that's, we do that through Torah and mitzvahs. The more we learn and we get excited about God, the more we do the things that God wants and then our soul automatically kind of wakes up, the more we will be able to connect to God and we don't have to sit and calculate how much debt we owe God and how much in debt we are to Him and maybe how much He's in debt to us because God, you know, God also did some things to us throughout the year. You've got to remember that too. All right, so, you know, what did God do to me and what did I do to Him and maybe does it balance out, does it not, do I need more power? That's not how we're supposed to be going about things because we can get stuck there and we can forget the main point, which is action, which is joy, which is that recommitment and that reconnection. So the next important thing that, to address Emma's question was is um, when you asked it yesterday, I don't remember what I told you, but then I went inside, I picked my head into Yehudas' class and, and I asked her, by the way, what are you teaching the shluchas? Because I want to make sure I don't double teach. And she said she's teaching them a mimer from Lamed, a, sp- a specific mimer of the Rebbe on Ani Dodi. And then I remembered that in that mimer, there's, there's the answer to your question. Because there the Rebbe discusses how actually Elul is like the highest month of all, even higher than Yom Kippur for one reason. And that is specifically the lack of feeling in Elul. Elul is not an emotional, inspirational time, right? As we've discussed, the king is in the field, the king is here, but he looks like a farmer. It is a regular month, and specifically because it's a regular month, it has the highest opportunity. Because when we meet God in our day-to-day mundane life, when we choose God, even though we don't feel on a personal level excited about him in the moment, that's a true relationship with God. Because in that moment, we're putting ourselves and our ego aside. When we say, okay, I'm going to wait for, my, for me to feel a personal love for God before I commit a relationship to him, it's dependent on you and it's dependent on your limited ability to love God, which, by the way, is very limited because we can only feel emotions based on how much we can understand. And we can understand a very, 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 very tiny drop of the truth of God. So if we depend our whole relationship on God Based on our emotions, we're going to have a very limited relationship with him based on how much we understand God. But if we approach the relationship with God, we do the things God said, do these things to have a relationship with me, even though we don't feel anything, then we're able to meet God the way he truly is because our limited perspective is not getting in the way. So when it comes to Elul on a practical level, we need to do. The action is the most important thing. And to help us get motivated, we should know that the king is in the field, that when we do those actions in this month, they're going to have an effect that is way, way greater than if it had been any other time because the king is in the field. But a lot of the voda of Elul doesn't look exciting. It doesn't, it's not these huge, inspirational light bulb moments. It's small, small steps that we take where we say, I care about my relationship with God. I don't feel... I've done things that have made me desensitized, but I'm going to push forward anyway. When we do that, we're meeting God. According to the Mima here, we're meeting God on a deeper level than even on Yom Kippur. Because Yom Kippur, we're, we're feeling, we're, you know, we're fasting, and it's almost, almost about us in a way. Our forgiveness and our year and, and how much I have been aroused and inspired by the environment around me on Yom Kippur. And that limits almost the connection in a way. 
Elo is not about us. It's about the relationship and it's about just taking that, that step forward. So is Elo about like asking her to share? Or is it about like changing things and like doing more steps towards, like making more steps towards being like... So when you say asking for teshuva, do you mean asking for forgiveness? Yeah. Like asking for kapara, okay. Like asking for forgiveness. So, yes. But the question is just how are you approaching it? So this is the thing, like Hasidus almost makes Edel, and also by the way, once you learn about Rosh Hashanah, I, I don't know if you have classes about Rosh Hashanah specifically, you're gonna have to find out, but Hasidus has a completely different view of Rosh Hashanah as well. Like everyone else sees Rosh Hashanah, the day of judgment. We see it as the day you crown the king. Two different things. So the truth is, they're all the same thing, but it just depends how are you approaching it. Rosh Hashanah, we are getting judged. We're not going to just like forget about that. But, but what is your kavanah and intention in approaching that day? Is it, oh my gosh, now I'm going to get judged. My whole year depends on today. Um, I have to, you know, quickly. Or is it, today is an opportunity to meet God in a way that I can't, God needs me. Like, it's just how you're approaching it. The result is the same. The result is the same because when we recommit to God, we're automatically saying, leave my past behind. I'm in, this is a new relationship now. So then automatically it's like, okay, so then we're forgiven for the past. Um, so the Haskalah, the philosophy behind Trevor, we're going to be discussing actually in this moment. And again, it gets a bit, a bit lofty. That's why I wanted to first give you some practicals because we're in Edel now. We need to know like what... <laughs> what are we supposed to do, right? And as I said yesterday, there's no magic Edel formula. It's nothing... It's, not, it's, it's the stuff we've been doing the stuff we've been working on until now oh, to try and push ourselves even if we're not feeling a little bit more in this time okay so kapara means atonement forgiveness so yom kippur means the day of forgiveness and then kaparot is the process where we uh, we get forgiven by either sacrificing a chicken giving it our sins and having sacrificed or with money or the fish depending on on the custom they all come from the same word of kapara forgiveness Okay, any, any questions, comments before we go inside? Good, okay, so we're going to start the Mimer inside now. And the first Ani Lododi really focuses on the first part of the verse from Shir Hashir, Ani Lododi Vododi Li, as we discussed. It explains the connection between that verse and between Elul. It's a time where we initiate the relationship in Elul. This Mimer is going to focus on the second half of the Pasuk, which is Haro'e Bashoshanim, which means who nourishes me who shepherds me, who feeds me with roses. This is the second part of the verse. And we need to understand, now that we understand what Anila Dodi is talking about, what is the connection between Anila Dodi, between the Avodah of Elul and between this concept of being nourished with roses. So this mimer starts off with this kind of question, as we're going to see. Then it says, in order to understand this, we need to understand something totally different, asks another seemingly unrelated question, teaches us about a Hasidic um, Kabbalistic concept and then it's going to take us back okay so let us start inside page 4 on the right should we close I'm debating if we should close the window if it won't help yeah yeah, Wait. yeah. this one's closed and this this is just water okay Never mind. I guess when you're hearing from both sides it like becomes a whole chorus of your shalayim life okay ani lododi vododi li haro'e bashoshanim I am to my beloved, I'm connected to my beloved, my beloved is to me, my beloved is connected to me, who feeds me with roses. What are roses? Hine, one of the explanations for what this is referring to is that Shoshana, Yeshba, a rose has Tlisar Alin, 13 petals. So it's speaking about a specific Roses, this is explained in the Zohar, that these roses are referring to a specific rose that has 13 petals. What is the significance of a 13-petaled rose? Keneged yud gimel mechilen derachame, it says in Zohar. This is corresponding to the 13 attributes of God's mercy. So when we say on a simple level, my beloved feeds me with roses, on a deeper level, my beloved is God, Right? Dodi is referring to God. God feeds us the 13. God gives us and enables us to tap into the 13 attributes of mercy. So what are the 13 attributes of mercy? As we discussed, when Moshe went up the mountain for the third time to get forgiven on Yom Kippur, Hashem taught Moshe the 13 attributes of mercy, which we invoke when we want to tap into God's 
mercy and forgiveness over us. There are two sources and places for the 13 attributes of mercy. The first one is in Micha, which I think is called Micah in English, which he was a prophet. And it says in chapter 7 of Micha, um, you'll see that it, it, it breaks the verse up into 13 parts. Mi kel kamocha, who is like you, God? That's the first. Nose ovan, who pardons sin. over al pesha, who overlooks transgression. The she'eris nachalaso, to those who remain part of his portion, of his, of his heritage. You don't have to write the translation again because it's right on the right side and you can fo- follow along on the right if you'd like. Lo hechazik la'od he does not hold onto his anger forever. Ki chafetz chased, who? Because he desires um, kindness. Yashuv yirachameinu, he will return us to his mercy. Yichbosh avonaseinu, he will suppress, he will conquer our sins. Bless you. Vesashlich b'matzolat yam kol chatosaf, he will send all of our sins into the depth of the sea. Titen emet leyakov, he who gives truth to the people of Yaakov, to the Jewish people. Chesed la'avram, kindness to Avram. Asher nishpata la'avaseinu, which you promised to our forefathers, mimei kedem, in years previously. This is one version of the 13 attributes of mercy, which is just describing almost God's incredible mercy for his people. The second one, which we're much more familiar with, is from Pashat Kisisa, and which is from the story where Moshe goes up the mountain, and this is what um, Moshe invokes for mercy. And this is the common one that we say again and again and again in the Slichot and on Yom Kippur, and every time that we're... um, we're doing Tachanun. Hashem, and okay, so here it divides it, saying which words uh, go into which of the 13. You should know that there's many, many, many opinions about how you actually break it up the verse into 13, because there's more than 13 words. Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum V'chanun, God, God, who is the God of mercy and who is gracious, Erech Apayim, who is slow, to anger, v'rav chesed, and he's full of kindness for emes and truth. Not ser chesed la'alafim. He has kindness for thousands of generations. Not ser avan. He raises up our sin, v'afesha, and our transgression. V'chata, and our sin. These are three different levels of sin. Um, it's explained. Sin that's done on purpose. Sin that's done by mistake, etc. V'nake, and he cleanses us. This is the 13 attributes of mercy. This is referred to as that God feeds us with roses, Anila Dodi Vododili, acronym Elo, specifically in Elo. Shemisham Humakor Hachuva. From this place of the 13 attributes of mercy, that is the source of Teshuva. This is a very interesting statement because when we usually think about God's mercy, we think about that this is the source where God, of forgiveness, that the 13 attributes of faith is, is the source of where God forgives us from. So if we tap into that, we can tap into forgiveness. The Alter Rebbe says, not only is this the source of forgiveness, it's the source of that which helps us be forgiven, which is tshuva. How do we have the power to do tshuva? How do we have the power to actually recommit ourselves to God, to change the way we've lived our lives, pick ourselves up and live a new life? Where do we get that power from? From the 13 attributes of mercy as well. Yeah. So that is what we're going to try and understand in this mimer. Like, what are we talking about over here? So first we're going to ask the question of that. What are the 13 attributes of mercy and what connection do they have in Elo? Right. So it technically is in terms of like with Word, like what words represent the 13 attributes of mercy that we invoke, but you're right, no, it's not like one, two, three, four, it's okay. rather a level of God. Okay. It's, the, it's the level of God from which the source of mercy and the source of teshuva comes from. And they're both connected because once we can tap into the source of teshuva, we've automatically so- tapped into the source of forgiveness because when we do teshuva properly, it's an automatic process from teshuva to forgiveness. Proper teshuva means we're already forgiven. So... By us understanding what the 13 attributes of mercy are, which we're going to discuss here, by us understanding how we can tap into those 13 attributes of mercy and its connection to Elul, which we will discuss here, we will understand how we have the power to do Teshuvah. Okay, so Shemisham Humakaracho. From these attributes of mercy is the source of our ability to do Teshuvah. Lihiyot Nesoavan, which automatically causes God to raise up our sin and to do all the things that are described in Micha, that God is slow to 
get angry at us and forgives us for thousands of, gener of generations. In other words, these 13 attributes of mercy are not only about our forgiveness, but more importantly, they're about giving us the power to do Teshuvah. When we do Teshuvah, then Hashem will certainly forgive us. Thus, the main idea here is our Teshuvah and the power to do Teshuvah that we draw down during the month of Elul. So these 13 attributes of mercy, the Alter Rebbe continues on the left side, second paragraph to the bottom. The Haim Miskalim, these 13 attributes are revealed Berosh Chodesh Elul, from the first day of the month of Elul, She'az Hubechinat Etratzon, because that begins an auspicious time. Etratzon, remember we spoke about the idea that time is a creation, and each time unit is infused with a different energy. So Etratzon is speaking about a unique energy that's infused into a specific time. An energy where God is ratzon, he's desiring us. An energy of goodwill for the Jewish people. Why from the first day of Elul does it start this auspicious time? Because from the first day of Elul, ad achar yom kippurim until the day of Yom Kippur, these are the 40 days that Moshe, our teacher, went up to the heavens to receive the second set of luchot. We discussed this, that the first day of Elul is when he went up and Yom Kippur is when he came down. And this 40-day period is considered an auspicious time because of that. And just as the first days, the first time that Moshe ascended the mountain to get the first set of luchot were a time where God was happy with the Jewish people, so too the second time that Moshe went up, Rashi explains, God was happy with the Jewish people because of this concept of teshuva and because of this concept of forgiveness. So even though a lot happened between receiving the first set of luchot and the second, the Jewish people completely, completely sinned, right? They, they totally turned towards idolatry right after getting the first um, luchot. Hashem was as happy with us when he gave us the second because of this concept of teshuva and because of this concept of forgiveness. So this is why it's written in the verse who feeds us with roses in connection with the verse I am my, to my beloved as my beloved is to me which is the acronym of Elo. So where, what is our source for the idea? And we know that the Arizal is one who introduced this idea that 13 attributes of mercy are not only present in the time of Yom Kippur between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, but also in Elul. The source for that is this verse. Because in the verse that's specifically teaching us about Elul, that's the acronym for Elul, it ends off with who feeds me with roses, rose, roses representing the 13 attributes of mercy. Okay, so this is the introduction to the idea. And now the Alter Rebbe is going to ask a question. Basically, the question you probably all have, which is, what are we talking about when we say 13 attributes of mercy? What does that mean? So, Vitzarich Lahavin, page 7. We need to understand. What does this mean? That there is 13 attributes of mercy present in the time of Elul. It makes sense to say that these 13 attributes of mercy are present in the 10 days of Teshuvah between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur because we know that that is the time of forgiveness. That is the time where we focus on asking God to forgive us. That makes sense. That those are the days of forgiveness and where we ask Hashem to pardon us because those are the days where we know Hashem is judging us. So when you know somebody's judging you, you ask Him to forgive you. That they usually go together. So that makes sense. That we're invoking Teshuvah. We're invoking repentance. We're revoking, invoking, not revoking, sorry. We're invoking mercy during the time that we're judged. But that, what is the connection to Elul specifically? Yeah. Question. Sure. Um, I know at the bottom I read that in Chabad custom it does not um, do sleepers for 10 days. Is, it, is there a reason why it's not 10 days at the very bottom? Slichas are recited during the 10 days of Tshuva. Is not to say slichas during the 10 days of Tshuva. We say before, I think. Um, why not? That's a very interesting question. I don't know. Based on what I understand from the philosophy of Chabad is that, we again, we, we see this time as not just a time where God is judging us. We see it as a time where we're getting ready to crown the king. And we have it almost like... Uh, different approach, but 
I have to find out why. It's an interesting okay. question. Because I, I don't say slichot, um, women can, but like, it's an obligation for men. I, it's not something I'm actually so familiar with personally. Okay. Yeah, I, I know I heard some, uh, someone say seven days, and maybe there's seven days instead of ten, or, or maybe it's Maybe because of the days in between, because there's seven days between the two, but when you include the days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, then it's ten. So it's possible. It's possible that it's the days between. Uh, But I can definitely find that out. That's interesting. So, this is the reason why in the ten days of Teshuvah, we say the 13 attributes of mercy. We say, V'yavor, Havaya, Alpanav, Vayikra, Hashem, Hashem, Kelrachum, Bechanon, Erech Apayim, Baruch Chesed, Vienes. We say... We invoke the 13 attributes of mercy during the 10 days of Teshuvah. And that makes sense because we're trying to tap into the source of God's mercy as we're going to be discussing what that means. But the highest level of God where he is completely, where, where he created this concept of mercy. We're trying to tap into that so we can be forgiven because God is judging us. But the question is, what's the connection specifically to Elul? Because Elul is not overtly because your question, mind your name, sorry? Sarah, right. Your question was, is Elul also this time of asking for forgiveness? And in an overt way, it's not because we're not being judged in Elul. We're not being judged any more in Elul than any other month. So usually these things go together. When do you like plead your case? When you're in court, right? You don't plead your case to random people on the street. Plead your case when somebody's judging you. So in Elul, it's more considered a preparation. It's, 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 it's for that time, but we're not already like invoke, trying to invoke it on the same level because we're not being judged right now. But when you're standing before the court, that's when you say, okay, this, you know, I'm going to change. Please forgive me. That, these things go together. But that's interesting because I just was about to say like what we discussed before. Like the fact is that when you have the time to plead your case because you're judged, like you are being judged. So that's why you're asking for forgiveness. It's not the other way around. So it's like spiritually we discussed, maybe it is higher to like, you know what I mean? Like to do it even to, when we're not like, standing. Yeah. To, like maybe even plead your case to like random people on the street because now you have the, you know, you have the alibi. You have it at least straightened out for yourself. Like, but it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's interesting how it's like both inter, like interconnected. Like, yeah. One cannot exist without the other. Like, like you need to have your case yeah. organized yeah. before you show up in court. Yeah, it's so that's how a lot of people see Elul is, yeah. is, I, gather yeah, your case like metaphor, how much does God owe you how much do you yeah. owe God come prepared yeah. the metaphor that I really like that we like discussed is that like uh, there are a lot of like it's not obviously it's not a bad custom but like there are in all in all of houses like in a lot of households like men are lighting the Shabbos candles before women for the week like because it's easier to light it when it's like a little like they're lighting before obviously like, they light it and to blow it yeah, out yeah, so that when you light yeah, it it's, yeah. it goes quickly it's, it's very yeah it's very easy so it's like it's the same thing without like you're lighting the, the you're pre- yeah the you're preparing for, like yeah. You plant. You're planting yeah. the seeds. Definitely. You're not burning out yourself. Definitely. But the question still remains: What's the connection between mercy, between God's mercy, between this tremendous revelation, and between the month of Elul? We know from sources and from the pasuk that they're connected, right? Because it's in the same verse: Who feeds us with roses? Who feeds us the thirteen attributes of mercy? And it's specifically talking about Elul. So we know they're connected. But why? Why are they connected? And how are they connected? So the idea is as follows. The whole concept of tshuva is not just about sinning. Teshuva, when you think of tshuva, many times we think I sinned. Teshuva means I'm going to not sin anymore. But it says in the Gemara, when it comes to this concept of tshuva, that a person has to be every single day in a state of teshuvah. Which means, if you did a proper teshuvah in Kriyat Shema the night before, okay? Look back on your day, you recommitted yourself to God, you said, I'm not going to do any th- those things anymore, and then you sleep. When you sleep, you're not in control of your actions, we don't get, you know? Then you wake up in the morning. What are you supposed to do teshuvah on? You did teshuvah yesterday. You don't have any more, you didn't sin in your sleep. So the Gemara says, you have to be all your days in teshuvah, which teaches us Teshuvah is not just about sin because we have to be doing it every day. Teshuvah is deeper than that. It's a different, it's, a, it's an avoda. It's a, a path that we take 
that doesn't have to do specifically with sin. And this is already starting to help us because when we think of God's mercy, we think when God is judging us, we need to invoke his mercy. The idea here is we can already start to tap into his mercy, not just in the day when he's judging us, not just when it's this tit for tat, what did I do? How much, you know, am I going to get written in the book of life and etc. So, what is teshuva? Sheshav midarko harishon. That he returned, he changed from his previous ways. I lived my life a certain way until now. I saw the world a certain way until now. I'm changing now. I'm changing now. And you can change even if you didn't sin. Because that's a, it's, not, it's not to do with sin. It's to do with how you're committing to live your life from now. How you're choosing to see the world from now. And that can happen every moment. And that needs to happen every moment because the moment we turn away, the reality of the physical world around us is drawing us into a perspective that isn't in line with the truth. So every moment, kol yamav b'tshuva, even if a person's not sinning, he needs to be constantly realigning himself with the truth because every time you open your eyes and you look around at the world, the world says, we don't need God, we exist on our own, it's all about yourself, and that's not the way, that's not the truth that we live with. So even if you're not walking around your day and like transgressing and sinning and overtly, you know, doing things different than the way God wants, you still need to be in a constant state of chiva because just by existing in this physical world, we need to do teshuva all the time. It's not our fault. It's not like we did something wrong. It's the reality that God placed us and put us in. Because when we open our eyes and we see the world and we ingest the messages that the world tells us, which are against the truth, which are not the truth, we have to constantly remind ourselves what the truth is. So we're constantly in a state of teshuva. So then, why specifically El? Like, if that's the case, then can't this be all year? Very good question. So the end of the mime was going to say that we actually say the thir- we invoke the 13 attributes of mercy throughout the whole year. I think someone even asked that question. We say, I think that's a hava you were saying, that we say it in the Tachanun throughout the year. It's not like a special prayer we reserve for this time. So at the end, the al says something very interesting. Throughout the year, when we're invoking the 13 attributes of mercy, we're asking God to have mercy on our physical lives. Make me have an easy life. Don't give me physical suffering. Make it easier for me to be able to serve you by, by taking care of me financially, giving me the things I desire and I need, and shelter and food and all those things. When we're invoking the 13 attributes of mercy and the presence of the 13 attributes of mercy during this time, it's for our spiritual lives. We're, we're asking God to help us to have the spiritual life that we want. And, yeah. That seems like such a like a negative mm. of the world, really not like what I Def- definitely. Like, no, you're the right. World, like, no, so that's not what I mean at all. Okay. Even if you spend a whole day alone, you don't watch TV, you don't see anybody. You spend your day in the mountains alone. The reality of the world says well, when we open our eyes, what do we see? We see a world that exists by itself. And that's not our fault. That's the way God created us. He gave us fleshly eyes, which we open our eyes and we see we're here on our own. We don't look outside the window and see the world and see in a physical way God is creating this world every moment. What's the truth? The truth is that everything is God, that God is involved in every single aspect of our lives and of the world, and that God is creating, recreating the world at every single moment. That's the truth, okay? That's a very lofty truth. That's the truth. What do we see? We see a world that looks like it's running on its own. So it's not that everyone's out to get us and the messaging is, it's that the, the reality that we find ourselves in as a consequence of living in this physical world, which by the way, was very much on purpose. And the whole year we're gonna be discussing the actual um, advantage of finding ourselves in a physical world like this that just as a, by default, we have to remind ourselves constantly of the truth because the world doesn't scream the truth. The upper worlds, the spiritual worlds, are just like screaming the truth. So it's easy for a soul or for an angel to believe and to know that God is everywhere and that God is involved in everything because the reality of the spiritual worlds is God's light, is God's revelation. 
That's not the case by us. So it's not that we have to fight against the world and that people are out to get us. It's that we have an opportunity to change. And we're actually going to speak in this mimer about the fact that people in physical bodies in this physical world are the only creation, because there are many creations, there are souls, there are angels, there are, there are lights and constellations, and there are people. People are the only ones who can change. We are able, we're called mahalchim, walkers, we can move, we can change our destiny, we can change our perspectives. Um, creations in the spiritual world, as much enlightenment as they have, they're stuck there. So teshuva, when we think of the word teshuva, many times we think of repentance, we think that we connected with sin. Teshuva means to change. I'm going to, ch- to change for the better. To change for the better. We can only change for the better if we have something to change from. So if the world was just screaming, ain't old Milvado, there's nothing other than God. Everything is God. We wouldn't have to change because we would just, yeah. we would have a certain perspective and reality of the truth and we'd stay with that. And that's the reality of angels. That's the reality of souls. They have a cert- they've been given a certain amount of enlightenment of the truth, not the whole truth. Because anyone who knows God is God. Nobody, no creation can truly know God. But they know a lot. So they know enough that they're never sinning. They never, so they've been given a certain perspective of the truth. And that's all they know for their entire being, for their entire existence. Is that limited perspective of truth, Fazel, that's it. They cannot change. We have the opportunity because we find ourselves in this world where we haven't been given any perspective, where the perspective is an incorrect perspective, we have that opportunity every moment, every day to change, to do teshuva. So teshuva is an opportunity, as we're going to be continuing to discuss in this mimer. It's not that we've been cursed to be put in this world that's full of lies, and so we have to do teshuva as a punishment. It's an opportunity that only we have that the spiritual creations in the upper world are waiting for us to do because they cannot change. And we're going to speak on a philosophical, intellectual level, okay, about why that is. What energy is being invested into this world? What energy is being invested into the upper worlds that allows us to change and not to stay stagnant, but that does not allow the upper worlds to change? So that's kind of the discussion we're going to be getting into. We're going to, we're going to take a new direction from now, we're ending, this, this section ends off with what is the connection between the 13 attributes of mercy and Elo? And how do the 13 attributes of mercy help us to do Teshuvah? That's what we're ending off with here. And from page nine, we're going into a new idea, which is going to help us understand why we have the ability to change in this world and the unique opportunity that that affords. And then we're going to connect it back to the original questions. Okay. Any questions or comments before we finish for today? Um, I the lower one and the upper yeah. one, yeah. So why do you see like a dead animal? Like why is that something that you need to like kind of become like absolved from? Like how does that make you unpure? It's not like you're the one that killed the animal, like it's just chance that like, happens upon it. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it specifically means if you touched it, first of all, just to, oh. not that if you saw, or if you, for a dead body, I think it was if you're in the same room, in the vicinity, for an animal, if you actually physically like came in contact with it. And that's a whole discussion of what we call Tuma and Tara, purity and impurity, which is a very interesting section, part of Judaism, that doesn't make a lot of sense because it has nothing to do with clean and dirty. It's a spiritual cleansing. And... I'll, I'll give you in 30 seconds, because we will be touching on this idea throughout the year of purity and purity, but the idea is that when there's a tremendous amount of, of godly energy in something, and that energy departs, which is what happens with death, it leaves this empty space, and because there's still like tiny drops of godly sparks and energy left, impurity then finds, it goes there, and it feeds off of that. So it becomes almost like a hub of impurity. So the more purity something had, the more holiness, the more godly presence and energy, and that if that left, it leaves a hole. So depending on how big the investment, so there's a higher level of investment in a human body than in an animal, a higher level of godly 
presence. So when, uh, when God departs a body, when the soul departs the body, the, the, the hole that is left is very big. So it's considered it's a very big opportunity for impurity to come. So we have to be careful. And so we don't want to come into contact with that. Is that why when like a person passes away, like the rabbis say, like, don't touch like the person for like an hour or something like that? I'm not familiar with that. Um, I, I'm, be like a Sephardic. It's possible. It's very, I just, about, like, thank God I'm lucky that I haven't been in a situation mm-hmm. where, I, where, I, um, where I know that. Today, though, we are all considered impure. So we don't take these things as... Um, as seriously, the only one that we really take seriously today is the impurity of what we call nida, of menstrual blood, because that has to do practically with whether a husband and a wife can, can come in contact. But anything that has to do with whether or not we can go to the beta mikdash, because we don't have a beta mikdash, the impurity is not relevant right now, which means that's why we don't go to the harhabayit. We don't go to the place of the Beit Mikdash because we, you have to be in a very pure state. We today know that we're all not in that state. One, that's one of the reasons why we, we do not go there. For other reasons as well, but yes, because that has practical relevance for us today. Because it has a practical relevance about a husband and wife coming into contact. Yeah, you're very welcome. And what's the source of impurity? Like, where does it come from? The Torah. Uh, it's it's part. It, there's no, there like are, what's what's like the origin? Like what? Because yeah, like the, the, it comes from someone. Like the, the impurity can feed. Oh, off the what's whole. the source? I thought you meant what's the source of the concept, which no, is no, no, mitzvah. No. Uh, but like, w- w- what creates impurity? Like, where does it come from? That's a big question. <laughs> We're going to be speaking about that throughout the year. We have my mom that specifically deal with this idea of klipa, which is called these ideas of the things that cover over the truth. We're speaking about the different levels and the sources for it and the ideas of that. But right now, it's a bit of a big question. <laughs> okay. okay, but we will get there. Mitzvah Shem. Okay. Have a wonderful day, everyone. I will see you tomorrow. Emma, do you write those down? It's a good question. Yeah, yeah, you, should, you can write them down. You can write them down. Definitely. I have a question. Like, have a question. So, is it unpure? Is it like when you're born? I think it's this song. You said that when we're born, like, Jews think that we're pure and they're like sinners. And so they have to like atone and we have to like just continue on this like good So when is it that you get like impure? So if you're the, born like yeah. Right, so there's a part of us that's ne- that can never become impure. There's a part of our soul that is completely untouchable. And so we believe that and that we just need to reconnect to that. The idea of impurity, it's more of a peripheral idea of the status of the spiritual status of your body right now. What is the status of your body? And depending on that, where can you physically go? And who can you physically be with? So it's more of a peripheral, external element. But we're always pure inside. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You're very welcome. Okay, I'll see you all tomorrow. Ladies, we're going to and move. Bathroom, water, coffee, the whole shebang. And we'll come back, okay? Sorry, I appreciate it. Or yeah, moving something.